1: Welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and this podcast will, of course, be appearing on a number of related uh, channels. Given the breadth of its topic, it's my pleasure to um, have as my guest today uh, Dr. Simon Cox, who has written a book, a, a brand new OUP book on the subtle body by genealogy. Simon, welcome to
2: the podcast. Thanks, Raj. Happy to be here.
1: Now. When, If if someone were to come across this term, the subtle body, perhaps they have some training in Western um, esotericism or or, or Indic thought or not, but could you perhaps put in a nutshell what we mean or what we think of when, when we use the term subtle body, or at least when you do?
2: Yeah, so um, this book kind of came about of necessity because the subtle body is a term with such a broad semantic range in the kind of present day, and uh, I kind of wanted to pin down like where it actually started so i could answer the question you're asking me with a bit of kind of precision and rigor because in the present day it um depending on what kind of context you're coming from so my own introduction to the concept was through martial arts actually um, but most people come at it probably through engaging well i'm speaking in a very kind of american um western centric context here they come at it through engaging in yoga classes or some other kind of um new age or kind of yoga adjacent discipline and it pertains to um typically uh felt dimensions of the body um that are referred to in kind of mystical texts that don't necessarily have a uh, kind of biomedical correlates um that's kind of a technical way of framing it uh, a good starting point sure so
1: so so other than this 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 need this, this this need to define this pervasive term say a bit about the genesis of this book what what got you interested in writing this
2: um so yeah the book actually does contain a little autobiographical kind of interludes that are thrown in to talk about where this idea came from um but my own engagement with it like i said it came from uh, martial arts and engaging in martial arts and doing kind of like striking vital points and things like this that introduced me as a, even as a kid to kind of alternative understandings of the nature of the body and kind of flows of energy within the body. These these are kind of concepts that are uh, kind of captured under this large umbrella term of subtle body. And so that's what got me interested in this. And then I went to China and I lived in a Taoist temple for six years, um, and we did all of these what what you would call subtle body practices in the West. Um, and so I came back and I wanted to write a kind of book, um, comparing, uh, Taoist alchemical and Tibetan yogic subtle, um, body cultivation methodologies for, for it, for my PhD. Um, but I realized that this topic was just way too large and this term subtle body, um, was really kind of unwieldy because I was trying to use it to refer to things in both classical Chinese and classical Tibetan contexts. Um, and. The huge problems arose because it refer. It's a. It's ultimately it's a Western term. It's a term in the English language um, that we're using as a kind of like lens and kind of to explore things in predominantly Eastern traditions. Um, and so that's when I realized I needed to just go back to where where does this term come from? Um, which it turns out, subtle body was coined in the, uh, England and Cambridge in the 1670s, really. Um, and I, I tell this whole story in my book. Um, and then there's this whole thing. It begins as a kind of Neoplatonic, very limited technical term. And then it's applied to um, kind of the project of colonial Indology in this translation of Sanskrit texts, primarily earliest Samkhya, but then also yoga and later Vedanta, um, the kind of the earliest first two generations of um, British Indologists. Um, and then from there, it kind of the semantic range just expands. Theosophy brings Tibetan stuff in and then Carl Jung brings in Chinese sources. Until you get to the kind of 1970s, which is about where I stopped the book, because after that, the concept just kind of explodes in every direction, and it becomes com- almost uh, impossible to, to really trace every trajectory. You'd you need a, you know, a whole archive um, to do that. So then would it be
1: fair to characterize the book as tracing that particular term
2: and its usage in the English language? That's exactly what the book is. Yeah. Um, so it, it's oh, a, wow. A it's a as if limited. I looked
1: at it in advance. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. No, thanks, Raj. That's, that's great. Uh, that's um, the most succinct bit, definition.
1: But the reason <laughs> yeah, I'm fascinated by a number of different sorts of projects. Part of what fascinates me about this is that. Uh, my particular training is in South Asian studies, Sanskrit narrative, you know, however you want to think of it, uh, you know, uh, Indology to use a sort of passe uh, phrase, but um, I look at narrative. Now, having said that, um, you know, I have, I, I've been trained in Hinduism traditions for a couple of decades now with various teachers. And so this term uh, is typically a, uh, Used in circles that that I train in, as a direct translation of Sukshma shlira, which is right. an ancient mm-hmm. and established concept of having, you know, as, uh, which, for lack of a better term, it literally translates to the subtle body and 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 theorized variously with with uh, as as comprised of various koshas beyond the, the physical or the the, the food body. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I didn't realize was. Its vibrant usage outside of that, that Indic exegetical Sanskritic mm-hmm. tradition, and yeah. I find it fascinating. And so, do you want to say a little bit about the structure of the book and maybe the the, the arenas uh, wherein this 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 phrase has been used?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, what you're the you're pointing to, like, one of the most kind of interesting, I think, tensions in the history of this um, concept. And I mean, I I wrote this book in this very um, circumscribed manner where we're just tracing the history of this English term and, and its expansion semantic range. And then all of the things that it it kind of brings under this heading, including, I mean, is one of the earliest um, kind of things where they're like, oh, this this maps onto this concept from Samkhya. Um, and that's actually yeah, in um, Henry Thomas Colebrook's uh, published um, translation of the Samkhya Karika. Um, the, uh, um, the Samkhya Karika is the... Uh, he translates Sukshma Sharira, and I believe maybe also Linga Sharira, both as um, subtle body in those. And then his student, um, Horace Heyman Wilson, who was a, a Sanskrit professor at Oxford, um, kind of further wrote commentary on that. And he's the one who really linked it up with these kind of Cambridge Platonist uses of the term. Um, so yeah, to, to give a kind of framework of the book, uh, well, the earliest chapter actually um, is the late antique and Neoplatonic discourses around this term, Okema. Okay, um, and that, um, that, I wanted that to be the second chapter, but Oxford wanted me to put it first because they just wanted to go chronologically and I understand that. Um, but it's kind so, of a pre so, so
1: so then yeah so so tell us then just a I, I rarely interrupt guest but give us a little footnote in terms of why you had wanted to put that first
2: or, or, yeah a, a yeah, second, yeah. so why i want to put it second so yeah i um when i started this book uh i didn't intend this to ever be, become a book i didn't want this to be my dissertation um but it became my dissertation and then became this it, book and everything. it
1: shows you it shows you yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah um So uh, I started as a very small circumscribed project, just subtle body, where does it come from? And I traced it back to um the um this book the true intellectual system of the universe wherein all atheism is confuted and it it has like a four more lines of title because that's how they wrote books in the 1670s uh by um Ralph Cudworth who was a professor at Cambridge who he like he like grew up at Cambridge like he entered Cambridge at age 13 and then kind of got degree after degree after degree degree. and then at the age of I believe 27 he went from being a student to being a, a a professor so like this dude just lived his entire life at Cambridge um and it shows he's he's really brilliant but he um a later um commentator on him said he was not possessed of um like a structured genius and that his books are confused heaps of stones and precious stones and pearls um so he wrote this massive thing called the true intellectual system of the universe that's like just impossible to make heads or tails of so, but I had a lot of time, a lot of fun kind of spending a lot of time with this thing. And there's a big section uh, toward the end of the book where he's talking about this concept of the subtle body. Um, but uh, so and, and he's translating, he's actually translating this term Soma Leptomeres out of Aristotle from book one of um, De Anima or On the Soul, Perip-tuke. Um So he translates it from this ancient Greek source, but then he loops in all this late antique Neoplatonism stuff on this theory of this vehicle of the soul. The Okema, which is kind of you um uh reincarnate in this thing, essentially. It's like the adamantine kernel that puts on different bodies through different incarnations. Um and so he elaborates that concept in the context of this book, The True Intellectual System, where he's largely critiquing the kind of like materialism and Thomas Hobbes. Um and so that's kind of the gist of my the well, what I wanted to be in my first chapter. And I wanted it to be the first chapter because that's where the term subtle body begins. Um but then, to give some context of what this guy is talking about, because Cambridge Platonism is obviously not like, not everybody knows what's going on here, I, I wrote another chapter giving this sort of late antique prehistory of the terms that, that Ralph Cudworth was dealing with, um, predominantly this term okema, Panuma, which is a combination of a term okema out of uh, Plato and Panuma, which is like a really elaborated in Aristotle. And then the late antique Neoplatonists kind of like wedged them together and made this one concept out of it out of, about these kind of vehicles of the soul. And this was the sort of thing that then when indologists and these all these indologists were operating from you know um, Cambridge and Oxford and they were very well read in their Cambridge Platonism and they all knew Cudworth like the back of their hand when they were first reading texts like the Samkhya Karikas or Patanjali Sutras and things like this that that's when they were they already had this kind of like storage of these um Pla- Platonists kind of Platonist lexicon, really. And they were bringing that to bear on these Sanskrit texts. Um, and so very early on, they're, they're like out and out kind of syncretizing. They're saying there's this idea from Samkhya, but it kind of looks like this idea from Platonism. And then they're like, well, actually, Plato learned from Pythagoras and Pythagoras traveled to India. And so this idea, these are, act, are actually the same ideas. And the Platonist, Platonist version is a later kind of more corrupted version of the original pristine uh, Hindu tradition. Um, And so that's operative. It's kind of this earliest layer of uh, uh, interpretive work that was being done in the kind of 18th and early 19th centuries.
1: So I know very little next to nothing about uh, this particular niche, but one thing that was striking uh, when you described it in the the ancient Greek context is that the subtle body is basically the agent... um, the, the, the instrumental agent in reincarnation, and that's precisely mm-hmm. how it's thought of in most um indic wisdom traditions I've come across. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any credence to the idea that there was this connection between uh, uh esoteric knowledge uh, production in ancient India and ancient Greece?
2: uh yeah, personally, I think there there's i mean obvious resonances. Um, I was a huge fan of, uh, when I was an undergrad, Thomas McEvely wrote this, The Shape of Ancient Thought, and it's kind of this book com- comparing ancient Greek and ancient Hindu thought, and he, it, it's not like the most rigorous scholarship, um, but it's, it's a, he, he makes it quite, I don't know, compelling cases as you could um, back, uh, this is 20 years ago, a lot of his ideas have been kind of um, caught on a little bit in academia these days and have more credence than when he made them um but he was was talking about this kind of the earliest influence being from india to um kind of greece and the ionia the kind of coast of turkey uh in about you know sixth fifth centuries bce when these two areas were kind of tied together by the persian empire um and then later the kind of influence went back from greece toward india um and uh so yeah that's McKevley's framework and i think there's just a ton Um, of circumstantial evidence for this sort of stuff. Um, It's just, it's unfortunate that we really, um, finding kind of like manuscripts smoking guns and things like this has kind of been continually evasive. Um, But I mean, all of the, the, in my Neoplatonism chapter, all of these Neoplatonists were obsessed with the East. It's this term that we use kind of Platonic Orientalism. They had this like very um, kind of venerated notion of the East as the source of all wisdom um and you know Plotinus tried to hitch a ride to India by joining the the army of Gordian the third on his kind of ill-fated Persian invasion um and uh yeah and Iamblichus was operating out of uh, Syria he was part of old Syrian royalty and his whole theological system was based on this um kind of these very mysterious uh channeled texts called the Chaldean oracles um so yeah even at our earliest phase there was th- this idea that this stuff came from the east w- was there um and i don't think that idea just kind of came out of thin air um, and yeah so are, are you into this subject I, this is I, I love talk i love this and i could go on and on about this yeah no
1: i'm I, I, I you know, know my uh my 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 dharma as it were my my function my purpose as a podcast host is to put the features of your work on the radar of a broader public and interested specialist audience. Mm -hmm. Um, um, This is a topic that I have not, uh, so this is a topic beyond my research interests, which is primarily Sanskrit narrative, but I've Mm -hmm. been uh, very well-versed and trained in Indian esoterica. So this is a Mm -hmm. topic where we can go on and Mm -hmm. on about the sukshmashpashirida and the koshas and the understood mechanics thereof, et cetera, et cetera. So perhaps perhaps Mm -hmm. we can continue that. beyond the podcast proper but tell us a bit more about your book and what comes next
2: um yeah so so this is this earliest the first three chapters are really um on the late antique neoplatonic context which very well probably did have actual links with the east um but i don't really um get into that possibility within my book because again I was trying to this was originally a PhD thesis and I was writing this somewhat under the gun I wanted to write this and finish it and get out of grad school um while my wife still had like patience for me Uh, and so I, I i just i kind of i constrained myself in a lot of places along lines of inquiry that really fascinated me i i saved that stuff for another time and this was one of those things so i do i kind of sneak it in a little bit in my in my neoplatonism chapter every chance i get to mention one of these neoplatonists going to the east i do because they do it all the time including and in, in the year 529 the athenian academy was finally closed by justinian and damascius and his top disciples he was the scholar the the leading scholar at the um, platonic academy they actually went to the court of, of the Persian king Husrau I, um, the Sasanian um, kind of emperor. And Husrau was, was a famous for having in wise men from Oliver's empire, which extended into the Hindu Kush at that time. So you had these Syrian Neoplatonists at the court of Husrau for several years, um, and then in the kind of up at the another kind of um, academy, basically, of Gondeshpur, which is largely seen as the first hospital in world history. Um, so they were engaged in medical and esoteric, mystical discourses, and they were hanging around with people that were from the eastern parts of the Persian Empire. There are obvious connections here, but like the the documents um, are just are evasive uh, for a variety of reasons that I still haven't fully teased out. Um, oh, but so, one
1: one overarching reason is that uh, Indic culture isn't superb at keeping records because everything is timeless and everyone's everything's authored <laughs> by Vyasa or some sage and it's it's sort of it's it's a purposeful illusion of the sociocultural uh, horizon and the the, the sort of uh, mundane authorial agency and so this is how Indic texts are presented. Mm-hmm. So unsurprisingly, mm-hmm. we would have a, this is the problem studying South Asia. <laughs> this yeah. is a problem. <laughs> Yeah, Anyhow, wow, that's a that's an
2: excellent way of putting of framing the problem. I, obviously this this now we're we're okay. getting into your specialty territory, right? But
1: clearly, clearly we need to talk beyond <laughs> the podcast, but but I digress. <laughs> um yeah, please continue.
2: Yeah, cool. Okay. Um no, yeah, fantastic. Uh so that's my um neoplatonism chapter. I try to sneak in as much of this eastern stuff as I can. Um and then is the Cambridge Platonist chapter which is about, well, significantly it started with this guy, Ralph Cudworth. The term subtle body does show up actually um, in 1651 in the correspondence between Thomas Hobbes and Rene Descartes. And that's where I start this chapter, Um, just to kind of give a a larger philosophical framework to understand the world that the Cambridge Platonists were writing from. Um, And Descartes and Hobbes are actually arguing over who came up with the um, idea of the subtle body first, uh, even though they don't really agree on what it is because Descartes was a dualist and Hobbes was a kind of reductive materialist, I guess you could say, somewhat anachronistically. Um, But they both talk about this subtle body being this sort of thing that mediates between the gross corporeal body And well, and then for Descartes for for the soul, which is immaterial. And then for Hobbes, there is no immaterial soul, but there is kind of very, very subtle matter. And that's what this things like life and the soul are actually made out of. So he was was usually a monist. Um, And so that's like one caveat place it shows up, but it really takes on force in the Cambridge Platonist milieu with Ralph Cudworth and Henry Moore. And then late in the chapter i treat lady anne conway who was a student of henry moore's who did a kind of kabbalistic interpretation of this going off of the cambridge platonist stuff but then she was significantly influenced by kabbalah which henry moore was as well and, and ralph codworth to a certain extent um and so that frames out that the earliest kind of um anglophone usages of this term subtle body, which didn't really have anything to do with with Indian religions. It was it was a translation of a, uh, sorry, ancient Greek term out of Aristotle. And then it kind of constellated within a late Neoplatonic revivalism in the British 17th century. <laughs> and um, what
1: do you think the appeal might be uh, in this particular context for the preservation and the, the mapping and the grokking of this, this subtle body idea? what was was the um, utility or what was the purpose in this discussion at this, at this juncture, in this training?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the purpose here, um, all of the Cambridge Platonists uh, really were writing um, in the specter. And this is like the crucible of the scientific revolution. Uh, Francis Bacon's Novum Organum was published in 1620. Um, So there was like this, this call and Descartes, of course, uh, for this sort of new, new worldview. And then, um, Hobbes's Leviathan was also published, I believe, in the 16, 1640s. Um, so they were they were writing largely against a lot what we would think of as materialists. Um, so there were these people. This was you know this is this all happened in the wake of the European Wars of Religion. Where it's about one hundred fifty years between you know the the um, uh, well Luther hammering his theses to the door, and then it's just like Catholic Protestant bloodshed. Seven million Europeans are killed during this time um this is largely a a kind of some warfare that's been forgotten um most people don't know anything about the European wars of religion but they were huge and and it just decimated Europe and it, it also decimated the kind of ideologies by which Europe kind of thought of itself as ascendant over the rest of the world um and so the Cambridge Platonists the kind of out of the wars of religion there came like this sort of future looking uh, kind of Hobbesians who said in the past we were all kind of life was well I mean yet this p- paraphrasing Hobbes nasty British and short um, that life was bad and things are just getting better and better with the development of kind of rationalism and, and uh, well technology later on um, and then the, but then you had the more kind of bad backward looking Cambridge Platonists who said no in ancient times there were there were the sages who had all of the wisdom and we live in a g- degenerate age and we need to kind of get back that wisdom. And so these kind of two historical narratives kind of set the stage in the 17th century. Um, And the Cambridge Platonists were really, yeah, they were arguing against uh, basically materialistic views of the world. And they were arguing for, um, well, this is my own kind of interpretation, uh, a more mystical. That's that's who's.
1: That's whose interpretation I'm interested in. in the moment. So that's why, <laughs> yeah.
2: this is actually why I'm sort of massaging
1: this out. That in this age of enlightenment and beyond, and sort of this, you know, you know, what would be the, what's the impetus? So, so please continue that important thought that I just interrupted.
2: Okay. Yeah. Let's no, see. So, yeah, sorry. I'm just as I'm saying this. I'm. I'm, I'm... Bringing to mind a bunch of different uh, Cambridge Platonist scholarship that would critique exactly what I'm saying. So just 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 letting your audience know that I I by no means speak as some lone authority on this topic. Um, I'm very much within. You, you might not think that people have strong opinions about the Cambridge Platonist, but but some actually do. Um, I actually got critiqued at a conference for even using the term Cambridge Platonist because someone evidently recently wrote a dissertation deconstructing that term, and I was like, okay, you know, you can deconstruct it if you want, but. It's a useful term and I don't think it's hurting anybody. It's, it's,
1: it's, uh, the, 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 you know, as, as a scholar of Sanskrit narrative texts, uh, you know, the terms epics and myth, myth is a hugely problematic term. Mm -hmm. But if I'm, you know, if I'm, uh, talking to someone, uh, if I'm in an Uber and someone asks me what you study or what you, Mm -hmm. you know, you're a prof or you're, you know, what do you study? I study ancient Sanskrit stories or myths. Right, I yeah. studying in mythology. If I say in mythology, they have a much better, clear sense of what I mean. So right. I think it's just a question of it's important to you know, uh, it's important to figure out which exact twig we're looking at, but <laughs> we can't lose sight of the forest. We can't lose
2: sight of the forest. So yes, please. Thank you. Raj. Continue. That's great. Maybe that's why we're both independent. <laughs> 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 uh,
1: um, I'm independent for a variety of reasons, and I actually <laughs> quite enjoy enjoy the freedom and but uh, independent seems problematic in my particular cases there's so much um I'm, I'm collaboration with uh with profs um um but i will say i'm not sure if it's the same with you but in my case um uh, rendering accessible is one of the, my one of the one of the sort of the the the, the, the pillars and the temple of my life purpose mm, wow. rendering accessible so mm-hmm. so so Yes, of course, something may be lost from the specialist perspective, but nevertheless, can we communicate ideas in a way, particularly as a continuing studies educator,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: individuals who are interested can understand them, understand their relevance, dive into the specialist article if they need to. This is what this podcast is about. If people want to read your book, yeah. they want to read your book. If they mm-hmm. have an opinion on 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 Platonic anything, they'll already have an opinion. But but what we're doing here? What are we doing here? We're rendering accessible what it yeah. is that we do as academics, what it is that you've done in your project. That makes sense. Yeah.
2: No, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's that, that spirit also kind of struck me in the book. And that's a big part of why. Um, so I have these first three chapters I've kind of elucidated. It starts out as very nerdy stuff, hard scholarship, you know, sort of the whole that whole thing, grad school vibe. You've got to um, please your committee, right? <laughs> I please my committee. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Uh, <laughs> And then I have a chapter on um, theosophy, and and things. This is things where things start getting a little weird. If anyone's ever dealt with uh, Helena Blavatsky, um, she's just a totally fascinating and inscrutable character. Um, and then, but after that, then I start having these little um, interludes, little like four four pages. It's I. It's not too self indulgent, uh, but little autobiographical things that t- just talking about why I became interested in this topic. Um, and so this is a big part of, of making accessible this book. So like, I know my, my grandma like got a copy of this book and she's not going to know words like praxeologies and be talk about late neoplatonic, um, kind of epistemological hair splitting. Um, but I, you know, I mean like just skip the parts that you don't like and you can get, you'll get to the autobiographical sections and those are written, um, in a very a much more informal style, um. I use contractions uh, and things like that. And uh, I just talk about my own history growing up as a kid in the kind of 1980s and watching Batman cartoons and um, getting really into ninjas um, and how that, that kind of got me interested in this concept. That And eventually I studied classics in undergrad and then yeah, I went to China and then started grad school. Um, and so my, my interest in this gets a little more scholarly as time goes on, but it started very much uh, just out of a sense of kind of childlike curiosity that most people have when it comes to um, th- this kind of this concept of the subtle body and kind of our own experience of the body and the possibility of kind of having other bodies that are not necessarily completely limited to our kind of corporeal reality. Um,
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. So would you say that these, uh, in, in your
1: in your? in your perspective, at least in this moment, which may change in two minutes, but would you say that um, these are various um, um, uh, philosophical, cultural um, constructions or thought experiments? Would you say that these are various means of making sense of a reality that is a subtle body? Yeah. Or would you say this is entirely just a conceptualization?
2: Yeah. Um, so I actually had problems with both of those options um when i was in re- writing this book and also just in my own life experience um, but those do seem to be like the two the two options because like yeah the, the normal scholarly one if we're good, being good kind of marxist social historians would be to view this or you know as a structural linguists or whatever as um just yeah um in this a much more kind of ephemeral way where all these things don't necessarily refer to one, the same thing, Um, or even, yeah, if we're being very postmodern, we could say they all refer to completely different things in different cultural contexts, and that there's no uh, kind of, um, no there there, uh, no reality behind this sort of empty signifier that that we use. Or, yeah, the the kind of a more kind of perennialist view would be like they're all actually referring to the same thing, whether it's in Chinese or Sanskrit or Tibetan or Cambridge Platonists or uh, Aristotle, Um, they're all referring to the same reality. Um, And this is where uh, this is actually my my main advisor, uh, Jeff Kripal. He really pushed me on this ontological point of like, what actually is this? Um, And I kind of elucidate this in my conclusion. Uh, which is a bit of a um, disjuncture from the rest of the book. I think the the book, I, I tried to keep it pretty um, historical without a lot of too much intense philosophical uh, kind of exploration. But the end, it ends up being like kind of my own little philosophical manifesto, the conclusion. Um, and there it really refers to my experience in China. And um, I kind of went to China at the age of 21 to this Taoist, a temple and I was living in a Taoist context and I was speaking Chinese and reading Taoist texts and dreaming in Chinese and doing Taoist practices. And I really, um, it was the opposite of a suspension of belief. Oftentimes people, um, you know, like Tony Bourdain, this kind of travel writer and travel TV show guy, he had this, this term epoque, um, uh, tattooed on his arm and epoque is an ancient Greek term that means suspension of belief from ancient Greek uh, skepticism. Um, and it's just sort of like this idea of like no judgment, just kind of see what happens. Um, and I actually had the opposite of that when I went to China. It wasn't the suspension of belief. It was like the intentional cultivation of belief and a kind of like as a heuristic just to kind of see what happened. So I really tried to enter this Taoist world. Um, and my experience of there was that um, I actually I actually did, um, that um, I wasn't just... Let's see, experiencing something across a cultural divide. I I really got this sense that you enter into kind of a whole different kind of reality or that you have the the ability to do that. Um, And I think this is something kind of a human capability that uh, we're we're kind of afraid of our own actual power in this regard. Um, And so at the end of my book, this is the kind of thesis I get to with this subtle body that These things are different in different cultures, but that doesn't mean that there's no reality behind them Um, and that these are actually kind of gateways into, into different worlds. When you do intense regimes of subtle body cultivation, whether you're kind of using a map and a whole cosmos from the Taoist context, as I did, or if you're operating within a Tibetan context, which has different epistemological, ontological foundations, different soteriological goals, and also different maps of the kind of interoceptive landscape of the body. Um, and when you all bring all of that to bear in the context of a kind of continuous regime of cultivation um, you do more than just have some interesting experiences it, it actually changes morphs you um to the to the core
1: well the, the, this tension we we rub up against as, as students and scholars of religiosity whatever that means religion has a thousand meanings religion has no meaning. Uh, you know, spiritual not religious, who knows? I mean, I have my <laughs> own personal views on that. But mm-hmm. nevertheless, um, 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 the, 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 my three favorite metaphors are uh, music, you know, music history versus whether someone's, you know, you mm-hmm. can be a brilliant music historian and be told yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> have no have no <laughs> rhythm and pitch, and and yeah, and conversely, one can be a profound musician but have no clue about the historicity of. Of of you know yeah you know start reacting to to hide in or, or or you know the, the structure mm. of the violin or or, or, or you know mm. you know what does it mean for an instrument to be pitched in whatever in in, yeah. in, in, in be flat what does that mean um, mm-hmm. and so th- there's you know you know uh, f- from an empirical scholarly perspective the, the the subtle body is not something that we can evidence in a materialistic manner. Now, Mm -hmm. without question, there are those who can corroborate corroborate it experientially, and -hmm. it's not such that only certain people can experience this body. I mean, Mm -hmm. on on one level, one can make the argument that what, what do words like charisma mean? What do words like an aura mean? Why is it that someone looks physically the same from one day to another day, but there's something in their presence that's different? Mm-hmm. It's not empirically evident. You know, yeah. So, so it's, it's, it, <laughs> one has to be slightly daft not to put together that why are so many disparate cultures with extraordinarily different theologies, philosophies, ontologies, soteriologies, mm-hmm. uh, massaging this idea that you are more than just your worm food body. Mm-hmm. right anybody who's experienced someone die especially someone who you don't know because when you know that maybe it's emotionality and projection you see that five minutes before death and five minutes after death there's something not there mm-hmm. whether we think of that as a, a function of the physical body or the subtle body or the soul who knows i mean mm-hmm. these aren't questions that can be answered probably through you know stringently empirical scrutiny but the human experience is a subjective experience and there are subjective experiences that we all share and Mm -hmm. anybody who has been physically connected to someone else and Mm -hmm. feels what they feel when they come into a room or when they leave the room or when they come close. I mean, Mm -hmm. one can develop awareness of one's for lack of a better word field. Mm -hmm. And perhaps, perhaps that is what is meant by a subtle body, but who
2: knows? These are just ideas. Yeah. Mm Yeah. Yeah. No, that I love the music analogy. Uh, that, that's that's right on. Yeah, because um, yeah, I mean, I I've engaged in this in this Taoist tradition that does the meditation tradition is called Nadan, which means inner elixir, inner alchemy. Um, and the first three years of our training was just sitting in stillness uh, for an hour a night. Um, our teacher kind of taught us how to sit and then didn't teach us anything else, but we had to sit every night. Um, and yeah when you do that you, you basically you just develop a very um a highly attuned sense of uh kind of awareness of what's happening inside your own body um and, and then only after that do you begin kind of working with kind of energies in your body moving things around doing interesting things and stuff like that um but I think yeah so why why are why do all of these cultures have with yeah completely different frameworks operating from different universes basically uh have they have um kind of literature that very usually kind of highfalutin literature so oftentimes the highest forms of literature um that are brought to bear on these kind of um capacities of the body uh that transcend what we what we think of kind of quite naively in our culture as just the physical right um and i i think it just it doesn't pertain to like we have a subtle body and they're all referring to it but i think it does pertain to a kind of latent human capacity that's been basically excluded from um, what the kind of this theorist I use in, in the conclusion of my book, Jacques Ranciere, would call the distribution of the sensible. So every culture has its own kind of like array of what is sensible, like what what makes sense, but also what is sensible, what you can even see or hear or taste or smell or touch or anything. Um, And every culture has its own kind of layout of this sort of thing, and it has to be finite because we're kind of finite beings. Um, And so depending on kind of what culture you're in, you'll have different sensitivities to different things. And I think we um, live in a culture in the kind of modern world that has a stunning uh, exclusion of these kind of what we'd think of as subtle body capacities, it's just been written out. Um, and why that's the case, I'm sure you could write some kind of a frame some devious conspiracy well, or something. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, <laughs> it, sure. But I mean, uh, one of the things, I mean, I love teaching. Uh, I teach in a variety of contexts. I'll teach um, academic context. I, uh, Typically, once or twice a year, I'll teach at a university by contract. I enjoy corrupting mm-hmm. the youth, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but continue, but most, of my, most of my teaching is continuing studies. And mm-hmm. so one of the spaces I teach at is at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. So it's a particularly um, um, edict or uh, outsider or non-conventional perspective. But mm-hmm. so many who show up are from uh, are, are invested in traditions in various ways, whether they're inheritors or adopters of traditions. Of, mm-hmm. of hindu traditions of various stripes um, um, um but you know we teach in in, in, in yeah I'd, I'd say overarchingly an academic perspective but one that's very respectful of and accommodating of understanding the inner life of tradition now part of the reason why i founded the school of Indian wisdom is there isn't really a space where i can share wisdom teachings in mm-hmm. a sensible way so the mm-hmm. people who come people who come just in, in this particular platform they are super smart uh, well versed in their field, uh, often, you know, at the top of their field. They're, they're, they've all have all kinds of academic traits, mm-hmm. um, everything from neuroscience, you name it. And they're, it's not that they're unthinking or uncritical or interested in escapism or delusion or dogma or charlatanism, mm-hmm. but they are also spiritual and they are, they, they understand or they perceive that there is more to the world that meets the eye in their experience of it, more to the self Mm -hmm. that meets the eye. Mm -hmm. And they're interested in what ancient India in this particular case has to say about that more. Mm -hmm. But that there is more to the human experience that meets the eye, I think is self-evident. It's just a question of whether we are going to try and make it um, um, available to materialistic scrutiny. Is is, mm-hmm. is 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 that what we are? I mean, and mm-hmm. it's it's comfortable and cogent from an intellectual perspective to think along those lines and in those terms. Mm-hmm. We have more evidence of uh we have more evidence we know to what to do with that we are more. But
0: mm-hmm. it's just
1: a question of what is an operating system? What you know, how do we make sense of that more? How do we make sense of these uh of a phenomena that we can't really explain but we see reported time and time and time again throughout mm-hmm. various cultures and so you know these are these aren't questions that we're going to solve but i think there is an interest among the thinking and intelligent and well-trained in the the mortal reality that meets the eye but i think it's mm-hmm. sort of a bit of a tight rope walk if that makes sense
2: yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, yeah, no, I I think you're you're right as well. And I do think we are at a bit of a kind of cultural inflection point. The fact that my obscure dissertation even got published as a book is kind of testament to this fact. It, it jumped through a lot of hoops. Um but, uh, yeah, I mean, this was an interesting thing, this this question of kind of empiricism and kind of uh, empirical validation and this sort of stuff um, and materialism. This was a very interesting thing about going back to the 17th century and seeing the origin of this concept and used in these kind of like polemics between Platonists and uh, kind of materialists. And, of course, we can tell which uh, ideology won out. We're not all kind of um, carrying around big copies of Plato these days, Um Uh, materialism won out and it was elucidated in great detail by people like Hobbes and and, and, uh, Francis Bacon, uh, kind of his methodological apparatus. Um, But that's the thing when you read these kind of the sources in the 17th century that are elucidating these problems. um, They have this understanding that uh, materialism is a a methodological assumption, and it's also a political answer. Um, There's no illusion that it's an ontological kind of commitment. That really doesn't come until i'd say around the kind of the 19th century that's when it, materialism and kind of inductive reasoning the way it that becomes a religion that, yeah yeah it, it's so successful and it, it, it creates it, so it, many amazing it, things that yeah it becomes, becomes a, a
1: religion yeah
2: yeah and ontological yeah. commitment yeah um and we've lost sight of that i think um but it always was just a methodological assumption, and it it, it takes us certain I, places, but it has I, certain limitations. Uh, the,
1: I think you've said it in a more thorough way, but I've said so many times in different ways to uh, primarily students. I said, look, science is a methodology; it's not an mm-hmm. ideology. Yeah. So when when we see folks responding to science as if quote unquote will save them, or you know, mm-hmm. then this is, you know, they're different. Uh, ob- maybe it's obvious among folks like you and I, but obviously uh, obviously, we're not going to dispense with what we know to be true of the mm-hmm. physical universe or historicity mm-hmm. or um, uh, yeah, just uh, uh, critical thinking, logic. Of course we're not going to dispense with any of that. And of course um, the intellectual journey is is honing those skills. But when you're mm-hmm. studying human beings and when you're being a human being, you're being much more than can fit into a chart. Mm-hmm. And 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 this is the more that this is the more that the ancients were were grappling with. This isn't, these aren't new problems, these aren't new experiences. And in in my particular view, it's it's an utter modern conceit that the the same people who believed in the Egyptian gods were the same who built the pyramids. Obviously, they had math and science and critical thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Obviously, they understood how the physical world worked as far as they could understand it. But mm-hmm. I think there was a, to my mind, there was a, a um, a code switching that occurred mm-hmm. between a practical mentality for practical situations, and then adopting you know uh, uh, well, what do you want to call it something perhaps more philosophical or spiritual or um just sort of the the acceptance of. Uh, uh well, well, what is what is your series? What is your book a uh, 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 part of? Which series? Esotericism, right? Mm-hmm, An esoteric, yeah. a realm that can't be known through empirical means, mm-hmm. right? So, I, I, I think I really feel like there is. We seem to want to, um, uh, characterize the ancients as unthinking, and superstitious, yeah. mm-hmm. and that certainly wasn't the case for anyone who studies any of these great figures who had profound intellectual ability and uh profound um esoteric or spiritual insight yeah Mm -hmm. yeah
2: yeah no yeah i don't yeah there's this real impetus to um whitewash history to turn people into like these unthinking automata. And I would hear I hear phrases in grad school all the time like, oh, the birth of subjectivity, like, oh, like the individual didn't exist before like the 19th century novel or something like that. It's I'm ludicrous. Like, it's ludicrous. Crazy. Like how could you say that? Especially in the kind of ostensibly post-colonial atmosphere that we exist in today. That's that's an extremely colonialist conceit to say something like that. Um, but it, it gets a pass for some reason. Um so it, yeah. The the, the critique you just leveled is exactly what these Cambridge Platonists were saying in the 17th century about just looking at the existential ramifications of a reductive materialist Hobbesian worldview. Um, And, you know, Henry Moore has a very eloquent passage. It's in my, my, my second chapter where yeah, he's talking about if there is no kind of life or consciousness in anything, then how can we say there's happiness because nothing can have fruition to itself? Um, And like, so what's the point of anything? And what happens to politics when we live in this world? It's just like he who has the longest sword kind of wins. That's that's what it turns into. Um, And so, yeah, I think their critiques were definitely uh, kind of fell on deaf ears at the time. And well, You know, but yeah, I mean, it's it's not you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater with all this stuff and science at its best as a mode of inquiry is kind of an unparalleled um, tool. Uh, But yeah, we do get lost, I think, especially in the present day, when science, um, when we lose sight of this history, we lose sight of its methodological origins, origins as a mode of inquiry, and uh, kind of living in the wake of the 19th century, and then this really got kicked into overdrive, really, um, kind of after 9-11 and the birth of new atheism, when science did become a religion, and now you have these kind of consilience people who are trying to really firm things up and get rid of all the skeptical stuff. And so you just have kind of metaphysical commitments at the, as the foundation of a new science. Something that's very platonic about it, actually. It's quite interesting from a historical perspective. Um, but uh, yeah, this, um, the subtle body kind of keeps uh, broadens our scope a little bit uh, existentially. I think. So, hopefully.
1: So what do you um do you feel there will be continued interest in usage of this word? Do you feel that, you know, it'll be diversified? What's your sense of perhaps um, the, the, taking the temperature currently and perhaps projecting a little bit of giving a bit of a weather forecast in the future in terms of this word and in, in, in at least it's English uh, contexts? And um, maybe is an adjacent question to that, is this work that you hope to continue or is there something else that's caught your interest uh, in terms of academic inquiry? Um,
2: yeah, it, it has, I think it will continue to, to grow in a kind of interest and usage. Um, I, my book is really circumscribed to these kind of uh, pretty dense historical sources but there's actually a lot of cool present day stuff going on with the subtle body. It's a term that actually has quite wide purchase within the art world. <laughs> Um, and these kind of like newly flowering movements, like kind of bringing together art and occultism, um, like uh, Marina Abramovich is a kind of big fan of this stuff. And it, if you look at even uh, kind of occultism and art in the 20th century, uh, kind of, you know, Stockhausen and noise music, he was talking about chakras and stuff like this. It gets it gets really funky. Um, and there's this whole uh, kind of other cool like underground dimension to this. Um, that's actually much more interesting and much more, uh, I think, culturally influential than my something like my book will ever be. But what what my book is doing is just, just trying to like, clear the air a little bit, give us like an actual like starting point, something to latch onto with this, like, oh, it started here and refers to these things. Um, because I'm not saying that the subtle body I think the subtle body is a good translation of sukshma sharira, but I, I mentioned some Indologists who think it's a bad translation of sukshma sharira. Um, in any case, sukshma sharira is a concept that's elaborated um, in extremely detailed ways through the Hindu tradition over the course of thousands of years. Um, and so it's not something that you can just capture in a single kind of English translational term. And that's kind of that's all I'm really pointing out. And the same, I mean, that goes like triple for for Taoist terms. If you try to talk about like the Taoist subtle body, there's no term you could possibly translate as subtle body from Chinese. Um, but there's tons of stuff in the Taoist tradition that, that fits that really well under this kind of umbrella category and using this lens. Um, so I hope that my book kind of, yeah clears the ground a little bit and and allows for us to to speak with about these things in a slightly more kind of rigorous and sophisticated manner. That's, that was my only hope with this book. Um, and I, I was, I was done with this thing, man. I, at the end of grad school, I, I wanted to just drop this like a hot potato, but then my advisor was like, you really need to send this out. And then it got picked up by Oxford and it kind of jumped through those hoops. Um, and I added a chapter on Alistair Crowley, uh, and that, that, that was a lot of fun to write. Um, and then, uh, but now yeah there's this kind of i've gotten involved with some para-academic stuff um one of them is through the esalen institute in big sur california and we're starting this subtle body initiative kind of thing um mm. we just had our first meeting a couple months ago and that's bringing together people from all over the place and people with uh, kind of influence and stuff um so i have no idea where that's headed but it's going somewhere right. Um, you'll find out (laughs) yeah
1: yeah um that's great it's it's funny you mentioned Esalen. so so there's different different there are extra different wings of the mission for me these days you know it's academic production that's Mm -hmm. been fairly um consistent robust since uh, i defended in 2015 um you know you know sort of you know academic wheelings and dealings and conferences and panels and all that, but beyond that, I do tons of teaching. Uh, in addition to uh, continuing studies, more spiritual teaching, and this is the year of retreats. Retreats have ripened, uh, so I did a retreat um, in Australia and uh, just came back from retreats. And where did I go? The UK and Switzerland. And cool. it's really funny because I've most of my base, most of my audience, I'd say, is in um, the US and I've been meaning to sort of branch out and figure out and find a, a proper venue to host a retreat. So Esalen mm-hmm. is one that I've actually considered looking at, but either in Ooh. the New York area or in the California area. Uh, mm-hmm. but I, there is one in America, but it's tiny. It's like for, for, for seven, seven folks and it's, I don't even advertise mm. it, but it's sort of a, a, in upstate New York, but um. But yeah, it it would be interesting to see some of the work that you're doing there um, and what comes of that.
2: Yeah, I I think you would fit right in there at this specific moment in time, Raj, because Esalen um well you know it, it has a kind of I don't know what, what your impression of it has interesting reputation in different corners um but uh they're I, I, would, I would
1: say that that I would say that applies I I yeah. frankly <laughs> haven't quite I'll be really honest with you I I heard just a handful of things over the years barely knew it existed I, excuse me and then didn't really think it was a great fit for that particular brand of work but you know mm-hmm. a couple of students uh who who know my work inside out, both as as a scholar and also as a a teacher, a spiritual teacher, an academic teacher, you know, they really said, you know, this may be a really good fit for you. And I I haven't really looked deeply into it, but maybe say a bit more about why the juncture that you're at or why you think it'd be a good fit now.
2: Well, they're kind of pivoting it in more of a sort of neo-traditionalist direction, um, away from the sort of uh, a bit of an anything goes kind of sort of new agey syncretistic kind of thing as it as it kind of manifested in the 1980s. They're, they're looking to, tra- to tradition, are they? <laughs> yeah, now it's... So my friend Shravana, <laughs> she's, she's on the board there now and she teaches... Uh, actually does a uh, lot she does like six seminars a year or something like that on shakta tantra and she's from a, a kind of a tradition she grew up I mean, she's from india and grew up in this tantric tradition um so her she's she's uh, been
1: on the podcast actually we've had her on the
2: podcast oh, had a, oh okay cool i yeah. didn't realize that
1: awesome well it's yeah. it's i don't know for so i think we're up to something like i think you're my 270th episode it's ridiculous i don't know how that happened wow. anyways
2: awesome, right? <laughs> go, go, go please go on <laughs> Yeah, that's that was just to say that there's this uh they're trying to find people like you, I think. Um, which people like you are harder to find um than people that aren't like you. So
1: I'll uh I'll <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Oh, anyhow, That's <laughs> a, yeah, it's meant as a compliment. Yeah,
2: I was trying not to insult the other sort of people in that compliment. No, that's okay. But that's yeah. okay. Perhaps
1: perhaps we'll <laughs> perhaps we'll chat a bit after the podcast. Is there yeah. anything else about the the book that you hoped we we touch on? Anything else you want to say or ask any you know, any thoughts and uh complaints, I mean, you know, <laughs> anything else you want to add before we close for today?
2: Um, no, not not really. I, I really have a um, you know, I wrote this thing uh within this to just to sort of get through it and get it out there. And now that it's out there, I'm like whatever happens to it happens and I'm, I'm just happy if anybody wants to talk about it in any capacity, it's great. So that there's no there's no uh, hidden message I'm trying to get across or anything. <laughs> Fantastic.
1: Well, for those of you listening, you now know about this, this book called the subtle body, um, uh, new 2022 OUP publication, uh, by my guest today, uh, Simon Paul Cox, Simon, thank you for being on the podcast.
2: Thanks Raj. This was really fun.
1: Um, okay. For those listening, uh, keep well, keep listening, keep reading and keep, uh, keep entertaining, uh, the, the query the question, uh, perhaps the reality of whether you are more than meat. Take care.